Beyond the Field Guest Edition is powered by Money Empire, property and finance specialists across New Zealand. And of course, Atomic Coffee, providing the caffeine fix to get through the day. Our guest speaker today is Gavin Clarkin. I'd like to welcome Gavin Clarkin from Performance Nutrition. Gavin, how are you? I'm good. Good, good. Uh, Isa, I know you're chomping at the bit to ask some questions, so... Mate, just to keep things nice and light um, yes. to start off, Jamie Oliver or Gordon Ramsay? <laughs> I'm a Gordon fan. Fair I, enough. I think they both have big loans at the moment. I saw Gordon needs to take out 80 million pounds. To keep his, uh, Is that right? Yeah. Empty restaurants, a lot of bills to pay. Um, obviously, you, I'm guessing you're a good cook. If so, what's your best dish? Um, you'd be guessing slightly wrong. I can cook, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a good cook. <laughs> I, my favourite dish is um, probably schnitzel, probably from the old days of growing up in New Zealand. So I quite like cooking schnitzel. Get down to demerts. Shout yes. out to demerts. Oh, my God. A nice little voucher coming our way. Um, <laughs> have you ever sent a text message to the wrong person? Yes, I have. <laughs> nice. <laughs> if you had a dream car to drive the length of New Zealand, what would it be? I quite like Range Rover. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, favorite holiday destination? Hawaii. Oh, love it. Love it. If you could fly one kilometer per hour or sprint a hundred kilometers an hour? Um, probably fly. Yeah, mean, mean. And lastly, what's your favorite sport? Favorite sport is actually rugby league. Oh, nice. Yeah. Warriors Sorry, boys. Man. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> but I do love rugby as well. Mate, so just to kick it off for all the listeners out there, um, just give us a bit about where you grew up and your, and your, and your Kiwi upbringing. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Auckland um, in the Epsom sort of Royal Oak area. The rough um, suburbs. Yep, in the suburbs. Went to uh, Royal Oak Primary, Manukau Intermediate, which is now Royal Oak Intermediate, um, and then Onihunga High School. Um, yeah, so spent... All my, te- all my life up to 18 in Auckland. Then spent most of my adult life either in Australia or the UK. And then been back here pretty much since 2010, 2011, around that time. So, yeah, so most of my adult life, as I said, uh, Australia and the UK. Uh, and that was predominantly for work um, over there. So that's where I sort of started my career was over overseas. And I also did my study overseas as well, um, my degree. Oh, and family, brothers, sisters, siblings? Yep, so I grew up in a house full of boys. So I've got uh, three brothers. Um, I'm number three. We had you know, good fun, lots of sports played in the house. Um, I was really big into cricket and tennis as a teenager, so I played a lot of that. Um, and was just sports mad, so I always played sports with my brothers. So, yeah, we had a good upbringing. So before we get into, obviously, your professional journey, what I'm really keen as keen to know is... From Onihunga High School, where did the, I suppose, the nutrition side come in or, or how did that come about? So did you go to university from um, high school? No, I didn't. So quite an interesting um, journey, actually, to get to nutrition. So so my dad was an accountant all the way through. And so at school, I don't know if it was because we were made to do it, but we seem to be, we're, we're all good at maths. And I did accounting and economics all the way through school. So that was, I was going to do a BCom when I left school. And I did no science. Um, so no real interest in science, all maths, all accounting, economics, etc. Unfortunately, my tennis got in the way of my schoolwork in the last year of school, so I didn't get the required marks to get into a BCom. 
So I didn't actually go to university after I left school. I pretty much just went straight into work and stumbled into, um, I, I did a restaurant management role for a while uh, at a takeaway place, which was just a job I had part-time at school and then got into that when I left school. But, I, but that wasn't what I wanted to do long-term. And then ended up in freight forwarding, um, export air freight consultant. Uh, that was a job I got into through one of my brothers. So I did that for quite a few years. Basically, the whole way through, I've been really into going to the gym and working out. And I found that my job was getting in the way of that because I was working really long hours. So had a conversation with my partner at the time, decided what I wanted to do. And we tried to figure out what job could I do where I, what, that would enable me to go to the gym whenever I wanted to and came up with gym instructor, which makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, <laughs> so this, this all happened when I was about 25. So I guess, you know, that was my uh, first sort of um, career crisis point, I suppose, where I sort of started to think about what I wanted to do. And so did a one year full-time diploma to become a, um, a personal trainer, gym instructor, exercise physiology. Did that in Auckland and then went straight to the UK um, and worked as a personal trainer there for three years. And it was whilst I was over there, we had quite a good gym in the middle of London and right next to the Tower of London. And it was quite a big gym. And we used to have sports teams come and train there when they come down for the weekend, etc. And one time the Leeds Rhinos rugby league uh, team came down on the weekend. And I, I wasn't actually working, but they sent a really good letter afterwards saying that um, they were impressed with all the things that were in place in the gym. You know, this is back in the mid, mid to late 90s. So we're using Swiss balls and things like that, which is quite revolutionary for the UK at the time. And so the manager passed it on to me because I had introduced all those things coming from New Zealand. We had we were slightly more advanced. And it was basically off the back of that, I, I contacted the Leeds Rhinos and went up and spent a week with them just to see what it was like to be involved with elite sport and I and I caught the bug basically so I, I realized I wanted to work with elite sport in some way shape or form I wasn't a good enough athlete to be an athlete in that environment but um and then that's what sort of started my journey into nutrition I, I always had a passion for supplement use with uh, training and so I decided to go and do a dietetics degree and I was 28 at the time so and we my partner and I moved to Australia um, for her work and so I studied there and also, I didn't really want to go study in Dunedin. That was the only place that was doing dietetics at the time. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I started university at 28 um, and, yeah, just have been doing nutrition ever since then. So. Geez, studying nutrition in Dunedin is definitely a contrast because you drink and eat too much down there, don't you? I know, I can imagine. Yes, yeah. a scarfy. <laughs> That's, it's really interesting. Like, in terms of, you've, you just quickly, you've talked, uh, obviously, a little bit about start of your journey, but... Outside of that, interest in hobbies, you've talked about tennis. Um, obviously, you love sport. Do you yeah. have any other hobbies outside of that? Yeah, I guess um, I'm, I'm sports mad. So all I watch on TV is sports, apart from the news. I obviously watch the news every night. Um, but I've always been really into sports. So I watch all sports. I can quite happily sit and watch lawn bowls if I have to, if that's all that's on. Yeah. Um, obviously, I wouldn't choose to watch lawn bowls over anything else. But if that's <laughs> what's on, I'll watch it. So I, I've always been really into sport and I'm always keen on following sports. So I suppose that's my main passion. Study, I suppose, would be one that would fit in there. I'm always reading, um, keeping up to date with the latest research around supplements, diets that are out there. So I do a lot of reading on that. On, in that part you know I play chess and things like that but it's, I wouldn't call it a, a passion or anything like that but uh, that's that's probably my main focus just because I work in the industry I'm, I'm in, around sports people all the time so that's my what I tend to do in my spare time as well and tell me any 
superstitions or habits that you may have that uh, are definitely left field or anything around like a habit around food or anything like that that the listeners can sort of relate to? Yeah, probably no habits around food. A lot of people assume you're perfect with your diet all the time. I'm certainly not. Um, I follow good principles, but I definitely have stuff in moderation. I'm not afraid of eating whatever. Um, I haven't got any weird sort of quirks with food. I suppose I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So with my work, with, with how I interact, um, you know, in the jobs that I do, I, I make sure I tick all the boxes, etc. So that's it. I suppose it's more a hindrance than a quirk because it can hold you up in doing things sometimes because you want to make sure it's perfect before you send it through. Um, but that's apparently when they did personality testing on dietitians years ago in Australia, they found that I think it was 90% of them were perfectionist tendencies. So, so they're the type of people that become dietitians, apparently. So, and were so you always right were you always like that, or did you learn that? That's a good question. No one's ever asked me that. Um, if I think back, I probably became more like that as a late teens, early early adult. Yeah. Probably wasn't a perfectionist as a young kid. But then also, if I think back, my dad was probably had those sort of tendencies, so he probably instilled them in us boys as well. So that might be where part of it comes from. What would you say, given? Um the tendency is, especially around the nutrition side, if we're just talking in general, is it a maturity thing where people start to take notice a bit more on, on their food habits as they um, gain maturity or get later on in life? Like, and I'm just thinking purely from an athlete point of view, you always hear that they, the person at the back end of their career always said, I wish I did my nutrition correctly when I was a young fella or a young woman at the start. Yes, I hear that a lot. Yeah. And, and it's, um, and I think it's, Young athletes, from what I've seen, they, they, they can get by on their talent. And that's, that's what gets them in there. And they're still young. They still recover pretty quickly from exercise. They can push themselves really hard without having perfect nutrition. Yeah. And I guess it's a case of you don't know what you don't know, if that makes sense. So yeah. if they don't know the benefits, then they're not going to be following those to, you know, looking for those benefits because they don't know there's a benefit there. Whereas some of the older guys, you know, I think of someone like Simon Mannering when I was working with the Warriors, um, he started he had started to implement some nutritional practices and saw the benefits straight away. So then he sold, you know, yeah. so it's a lot of what I do is about selling as well as providing information because you've got yeah. to convince someone that's going to make a difference. Otherwise there's no point. Yeah. Like we, we see that all the time around uh, financial literacy and financial education. Um, you know, I've been, I've been through a little bit of a sports career and didn't receive too much. Then I know what I do now, but no different to nutrition. What I, thought was right as playing first 15 was uh subway before games and that was being my routine back then but i didn't know any different until someone actually triggered a thought in me exactly um, to actually think any differently and then i think back from you know year dot of my professional career to how things ended by the end of it you learn as you go when you're surrounded by you know good people, but you obviously travel the curve um, of learning at the same time. Do you find that still? Yeah, for sure. It, it's it, what you find with younger athletes is it, it's very much a case of, um, as I said, that they're, they're there on talent. They didn't get there because they've got a good diet, you know. So and and look, there is there are some exceptions. You know, I think someone like Nathan Friend, who I used to work with um, at the Warriors as well, Aussie player. He was a professional probably from when he was at high school. Um, so you get the odd exception, but most people, yeah, they have to be taught along the way. And I also think with my industry, it, it's quite a young industry, sports nutrition. There's not, it doesn't go back years and years and years. And so when you look at 
sports teams, you know, you probably know this yourself, Isa, in terms of the Blues, they probably didn't have that much in the way of nutrition support back then when you were playing. Whereas now it's, you know, my mate Dane, who works with the Blues now, he's probably with the team a lot more than you would have had access to someone back when you were playing. So yeah, it's becoming more a part of the sporting absolutely. culture now. Yeah, you sort of um, uh, key people uh, put in front of rugby players. They lap it up and they love it. Um, yeah. But it's not until that point. And then you think of other organisations, other sports teams around the place that have been light years ahead. You sort of scratch your head going, why weren't we exposed to that earlier? But yeah, there's um, it's a growing trend to be part of teams more because it's such an imperative part of lifestyle, really. It is. And, it, and from my perspective, you know, obviously I'm slightly biased, but the performance gains you can make from getting good sports nutrition advice are, are awesome. You know, and most people have no idea. They think it's just about, oh, the, the nutritionist is just going to tell me to eat more fruit and veg and have enough carbs. But there's so much more to it than that. And that's the bit that you've got to educate people on. I think um, one thing that you I've just picked up on what you said before that diet and food and the whole industry is quite young. Like you've got to think the medical and professional industry that has been around for centuries and that everyone takes as gospel food has changed so much in the actual makeup of food in the last 10 to 20 years that has a massive part to play. And you see so many health benefits just for everyday people and because of the makeup of food has changed. Is, is that something you're always reading about and trying to keep up to date on? Yeah, I, I suppose a, a big part of that is just filtering through the, the, the good sources of information. Yeah. What I can do is because I've got an education in, the, in nutrition I, I can, and I've got a lot of experience, I can filter through the stuff that... So there is a lot of information out there, you're right, but a lot of it's not correct or it's just someone's opinion or it's a theory. And if they're a good salesperson, then people will believe it, you know, yeah. and I can think of things like paleo diet, keto diet, you know, ketogenic diet with high fats, you know, all that stuff fits into that category. There's a lot of information out there, but it's just filtering through what's right and what's wrong. And it all has to come back to how the human body functions. Because if you don't come back to that, then you're just talking pie in the sky stuff, really, you know, which is not factual and doesn't help anyone at the end of the day. Hey, Gavin, would you say, and I see this a lot, I'm probably... Um, until obviously I come to you and see you, but until I met you in that, you see celebrities promote fad diets and people think that is gospel, right? Yeah. Most people, and this is the frustrating thing. So I'm a scientist, right? And so I just go off evidence and I go off, you know, practical application and it has to make sense from a scientific point of view. And we have to see some evidence that it works because you know, example would be I could tell you your, your car could run off Coca-Cola and until you actually try it, you're not going to know, you know, so you need some evidence, you know, it sounds like a stupid idea, but, but in terms of celebrities, people go to for their information on nutrition is celebrities and testimonials and anyone can write a testimonial, you know, opinion, but it's not science, you know, so that's the difference. Yeah. Obviously, we profiled how you got into nutrition and how you got into the industry. You did a bit of travel offshore. You started in Australia. You're in the UK. Mate, take us through your journey because this is really interesting and you've been through some really uh, different sports and organizations. Take us through the journey of your first sporting organization right through to um, where you are today. One of the things I get asked often is, you know, how easy is it to get a job in the industry with the sole purpose of becoming a sports dietitian? and working with sports teams. So I didn't want to go spend years working in hospitals with sick people or anything like that, um, just because I wanted to work in sport. 
So as soon as I qualified, my focus was on how am I going to get a job in the sports industry? And, and there aren't many jobs and there weren't many jobs back then. There were very, very few. Um, so I started working initially in a clinical setting uh, at a GP practice. I did some work in hospitals as well, did that for a year. And then basically whilst I was doing that, I was applying for jobs with um, the English Institute of Sport because that's where my, my partner um, at the time was a um, doctor. So she had been offered a job in the UK. So we were going to be heading over there within a year. And so I started applying for jobs from Australia with the English Institute of Sport. I applied for 11 straight jobs and didn't even get a letter. So, and it can be quite disheartening as you can imagine. And so, but in the meantime, what I was doing was I was being proactive. So I was doing volunteer work, um, working with sports dietitians that were established in Australia and just doing the odd nutrition talk, doing some um, hydration testing, doing some skin folds analysis, just basic stuff. I wasn't getting paid. I was just doing, you know, and I wasn't doing a lot of it, but I was doing enough to get some experience. And actually what happened was we, we ended up going across the UK regardless because my partner had a job anyway, and I didn't have a job to go to. And as soon as I got there, it must have just been because I had a UK address. All of a sudden, I started getting interviews. First interview, I didn't get the job, but they liked what I had to say and that I had proactively sought some ex, um, experience. And then they, they basically developed a, a brand new intern role for me where they could try me out for a month. And so they employed me for a month, they paid me, um, and I had to prove myself in that month, which, which you know, luckily I did. Um, and then I got hired full time. So, so my first role was with the English Institute of Sport. Um, and I spent a fair bit of time with the British Cycling Program up in Manchester um, in that first month. And then my first role out of that was I got actually, my first role was with the Scottish Institute of Sport, which was up in um, Scotland, obviously. Um, and so I was their nutritionist for a year based up in Stirling in Scotland. And I work with pretty much every Olympic sport, mostly Commonwealth sports there because they just compete in the Commonwealth Games and the UK is the um, Olympic angle. And then, then my next job after that was with the English Institute of Sport, working with the England, England cricket team. So I spent a year with the England cricket team in 2008. Um, that was my main sport there. And then after that, I transferred to the England women's rugby team. So I was still with the English Institute of Sport, but you get contracted out to sports essentially. So I spent three years with the England women's rugby team and worked with their sevens program, fifteens program. And I was, I was so lucky in that sport, I got to travel everywhere. So we did the Six Nations. We went across the US for sevens. We did all sorts of trips. And it was work really closely with the team and to see what happens when they're traveling and in competitions, sitting on the sidelines, running the water, doing all that stuff, which was great. You know, it was, it was, I, I love that role. And I also did a similar thing with GB hockey. So I did the men and women Great Britain hockey squads, field hockey. So I did that as well as the rugby. Uh, but the rugby was my main main role when I was there. And I did that pretty much up until I left the UK in 2010. I'd actually been offered a job looking after all the team sports for the US Olympic Committee. So all of the US Olympic teams, so volleyball, hockey, soccer, everything, I, I got offered that role. Um, so that was based in San Diego. They, they flew me over, showed me where I was potentially going to live, took me down to Seal Beach where they filmed Top Gun. Um, nice. I was going to get a condo on seal beach oh, <laughs> i love that that film <laughs> um and then bizarrely they flew me back home for a holiday in new zealand because i was living in the uk at the time um and whilst i was back here i just went to visit what used to be the academy of sport but is now high performance sport and they offered me a job 
And so I just threw a cat amongst the pigeons. You know, I, I had lived overseas for 15 years at that time and I had a big decision to make. So it took me about two months to make that decision back in the UK. But I ended up turning down the US and coming back home. So yeah, big call. It worked out in the end. So <laughs> can, can I just cut in quickly? Obviously, yeah. through different sports, there's different budgets, there's different there funding. Um, do you see, do, did you experience like big challenges going from different sports around, you know, how much budget you have, how much control you have? Yeah, it, I was lucky working in the UK. So Great Britain has got a big budget for Olympic sports. So I was always well funded. The sports are always well catered for. Um, so money was never really an object when I was working in the UK. England cricket had money for Africa. They they just we, the guys were driving around in um, Audi A uh, Q7s. They had um, Aston Martins. They had all sorts. You know, I didn't have any of that, but players all had that. Um, so yeah, cricket wheels. No, there were no challenges at all. England rugby, same again. No challenges. Lots of money, and the and the women's game was just starting to get heavily funded as well. So there, were, so there were no issues there. Um, and same with GB hockey, it was good. When I went to the US, um, so I'd, I'd obviously been over there a few times looking at the system. Interestingly, their Olympic sports are not they, they are well funded, but they're not funded by the government. They're all funded by private organisations such as Coca Cola, Powerade, people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do get enough money, but it's not a heavily funded program um, compared to the UK. And then coming back to New Zealand, it was it was not the opposite, but yeah, a lot of funding challenges. You know, some sports are funded better than others, such as rowing, cycling, sailing, all pretty well funded. Um, but then you look at a sport like athletics, where I spent the most of my time working with um, people like Valerie Adams and people like that. They were funded well individually, but the other athletes in the squad weren't. So you'd have some athletes that were just getting two or three thousand dollars a year to help with their with their travel, but someone like Val had 10 times more than that. So, so yeah, lots of challenges working in the New Zealand system. So yeah, so just continuing on my journey. So when, when I got back home in 2010, I spent the first eight, nine months working full-time with the Academy of Sport. Um, and then I wanted to work in rugby league. So I actually cold called the Warriors, their head trainer, uh, Craig Walker. I just turned up on his doorstep at, at, the, at the Mount Smart and offered my services and um, and they they said yes. So yes, I was lucky. Um, I talked myself up a bit obviously to get the job. Um, and so I started out a day a week with them. And so I combined that with my role with the Academy of Sport. And then pretty quickly that boosted up to two days a week. So then I went part-time uh, with, with my role with the Academy of Sport and just started doing that contract with, um, with the Warriors. So I did that for two and a half seasons. And then that role it was essentially after the 2012 season, which was not a good season for the Warriors, especially after 2011 when we made the grand final. Um, so they put the broom through the back room staff, which often happens. That, yeah. That's the downside of working in professional sport. If you're hey, not Gavin, one of the athletes, you can be dumped. Just so. before you go on, obviously, uh, the Warriors, obviously, icon in New Zealand because they're in the rugby league team and the NRL on that. When you first went in there, what was the feeling around nutrition in that environment? Like, was it... Was it frowned upon? Were the boys and, and the team really into it? Or, or how was that? It was a challenge because <laughs> you got a mix of people in there. Essentially, it was you, you had to create the role. 
yourself. And, and, and I suppose throughout my whole career, I've, I've had that because, because as I said at the, at the start, because nutrition is quite new in the past, what the way sports have accessed nutrition is just, they've had a contractor come in, do a nutrition talk, maybe dish out a few meal plans and that's it. Mm. And so most of the guys don't have a lot of nutrition knowledge. So you've sort of got to go in and build the program up from scratch. And that's essentially what I did with the warriors. They had a, a small garage in Mount Smart that was full of all these supplements that they'd been given over the years from their sponsors. And they didn't even know how to use them. You know, the vast majority of them had to use protein powder, but that was it. And so I had access to all these supplements all of a sudden that I could educate the guys on and start using, which the, which the trainer was happy about. But also I had to convince the guys of the benefits of nutrition. So it wasn't just me measuring their body fat and doing a nutrition talk. You know, I wanted to sit down with every player individually and understand what they were doing wrong and give them solutions to their performance and I use their playing performance but also their training performance training indicators and their skin folds obviously to give them feedback on how those changes are working or not working for them so um, but yeah a lot of challenges in terms of education but to be fair if you're confident in your ability and by that time I had worked in the UK system for quite a while so I was I would call myself a confident practitioner at that point in time and you've got to back yourself, you know, you got to, it's a tough environment, you know, you'd know, he said, we're in UK and obviously as well, you know, sports people are, are hard to get on with and the coaches can be hard to get on with as well. So you got to, you got to go in there and be confident in what you know, so that they're not just going to brush you off, you know, so, and then gain their trust and give them the right information that actually gives them benefits. So. Would it be fair to say from both of you actually being involved in team sport, when things are running good and teams are winning, you know, everyone's getting pats on back, things are a lot easier. But when, you know, the bad times come along and you start giving the big L next to your name and you let you stop dropping down the start dropping down the ladder, are they starting to look at people like yourself, Gavin? So, hey, what's going on here? Why aren't these guys performing? Is it that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I noticed, especially with the Warriors, like the head trainer was quite superstitious. He was an Aussie guy. <laughs> And, and he was anything new I wanted to introduce, he would freak out. He'd be like, if we lose on the weekend, that's out the window. <laughs> so it's just, it was literally like that. So you try to do something and it'd be like, if we lose, we're not doing that again. So I tried to change meals. And if we lost, it'd be a real struggle to get that reintroduced. So, so there's things like that, which made it difficult, but yeah, you're right. It's if you're winning, everyone's happy. There's no stress in the joint. As soon as you start losing, there's a whole lot of stress that comes with that and everyone's under pressure and everyone's trying to save their job, you know? Yeah. I always found that nutritionists obviously are light years ahead of the athletes and rugby and rugby player sports people can be so stubborn. You probably have got a lot of kickback along the way, but then eventually everyone kick, um, every, everyone catches up. I remember giving Dan Davey, the nutritionist in Leinster before I left, I remember scoffing at some of the things, just being probably an annoying little prick, um, just scoffing. And then eventually three years later, I'm going, oh my God, you were damn right the whole time. Um, and you always are in catch up mode as the player, but obviously yourselves, you, um, know what's of the massive benefit it just takes a while to coax people around yeah exactly and 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 also with athletes they have their their ways of doing things and they've always done it that way and so that and they can be often creatures creatures of habit as well so they they don't want to change unless they feel they have to you know and so part of it is convincing them that change is actually good not bad you know so but yeah it's yeah it's, it's a it's a challenge some of the coaches i've worked with have been extremely challenging but you've just got to believe in yourself, you know, because too many, too many people in my industry are passive 
And so they just get pushed out the back door. You know, there'll be a talk, a nutrition talk, and none of the coaches will attend. They'll just go off and do their own thing. You know, it's just a get that out of the way. It's a tick the box thing. And then, okay, she can go now or he can go now. We don't need him back in. Whereas you've got to, you've got to constantly push your, and that was the one thing I had to do with the Warriors was constantly push the value of my service and what I had to offer and believe that what I was doing was going to improve their performance and help them win on the field. Tell me, Gavin, what your time at the Warriors, just before we move on, best athlete when you were there? Best best person I worked with was Simon Mannering. He just had a great attitude. I, I would, re, you know, I, I don't know Richie intimately, but I would liken him to someone like Richie McCaw. You know, wow. if he chose to stick with rugby when he was at school and follow it through, he would have been an All Black, you know, no doubt, and a, and a great athlete as well. In terms of actual out and out athletes, I mean, Sean Johnson was a pretty good athlete um, and still is. So he would probably be the the best actual athlete that was there when I was there. Any standouts in other sports across your time, whether it's in the UK or America? Yeah. Um, in terms of the UK, when I first started with England cricket in 2008, they had they had only just really started to embrace strength and conditioning, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, so there weren't too many standout athletes that were there when I was there. Kevin Peterson was a pretty awesome athlete, at, you know, way over and above everyone else at that time. Um, and we had the odd athlete you know Alistair Cook was a good athlete um, that I can remember when I was there in terms of being in New Zealand you know people like Valerie Adams I, I did a lot of work with Val when I first came back home an amazing athlete uh, I worked with a lot with Jacko Gill the shot putter um, who was only 14 when I first started working with him even at 14 incredibly strong and you've you've probably seen some of his training videos an, an amazing athlete you know strength and power he could be a boxer, he could be a rugby player, he could be whatever he wants. So, yeah, he's, he's a great athlete. So, obviously, moving through your timeline, um, you finished, I think you said the Warriors in 2012. Um, you obviously yep. got to the Heights in 2011 to the grand final, and then 2012, um, you move on. Tell us what happens after this. Yeah, so, essentially, at that time, I was doing the Kiwis rugby league team as well. Um, so, I, I kept doing the Kiwis, so, you know, the room was put through the Warriors, but the Kiwis are a separate organisation. So I, I continued as the Kiwis nutritionist right through till the th- end of 2017. But in, in 2012, so pretty much just after I lost the Warriors contract, I got offered the Blues. So JK had come in, um, the trainer, Wally Rifle at the time, had asked the Chiefs uh, nutritionist if he knew anyone. And Dane, who was the Chiefs nutritionist at the time, um, suggested me. So met up with Wally in a cafe in Sandringham. And next thing you know, I was the Blues nutritionist. So I was pretty much went from one straight into the other. And the Blues at that time, yeah, it was, it was a, that was, I'd obviously worked with rugby in England, but that was my first New Zealand rugby role. And I guess the reason I hadn't been in rugby before then is it was quite a tough gig to break into, into the rugby scene with Super Rugby, um, because all the jobs had been filled by people that had been there for a long time, and it was quite a a hard sort of system to break into. Uh, But yeah, got in in with the Blues. Um, It was pretty full on. JK's first year, there was a lot of um, motivational talks and having to get up in front of the team and talk about your background and all this sort of stuff. Um, Yeah, sing and all that stuff. That's the initiation here with most team sports. Um, But yeah, it it was really... Uh, great atmosphere with JK at the helm. You know, he's, he's a very passionate guy. Um, 
and we had a good group of players. You know, there were the established All Blacks like Ali Williams and Chaz Balmwina and all those guys, and Perry was there. Um, and obviously, it was just after they won the World Cup, so it was a good environment to be in, in rugby, obviously. But yeah, but it was a challenge as well, you know. So those guys hadn't had a lot of nutrition input apart apart from the All Blacks players, of course. Um, so again, starting from scratch, the trainer was old school. It was military, um, so it was a bit hard times. But um, just before the first game, I I pulled the so they were five days get paid for three, and I had a young family at home, and I, I just couldn't do that, you know. So I had to walk away from that role um which was fine you know that there were other I, and i think it was about two or three months after that i picked up the new zealand cricket gig again through a someone a colleague who had um, and then much 2013 through to 2018 so i did five years as the new zealand cricket um nutritionist and at its peak it was probably a day a week contract so I obviously had to supplement that with doing my own private practice um, at that time, which I started ramping up in around 2013 after I left the Blues. So, Tell us, uh, Gavin, same question, Blues. Obviously, apart from Eastern Seaworth, who had left, best athlete while you were uh, at the Blues? At the Blues. So the strongest athlete um, was probably JP, James Parsons. He, he had, I think he had some of the best squat and bench numbers in terms of um, in the gym. In terms of absolute athletes, I think, um, so we had coming into, there was the, they only just sort of started in professional rugby with guys like, um, oh, what's his name? They call him Snake. Um, Fijian winger. I'm forgetting his name. Played for the All Blacks. He played sevens. Issa should, Issa should know this. <laughs> I, I can't remember his name. Well. <laughs> He's the one who broke his leg and went back to Fiji to try and get it fixed before the World Cup in 2015. Oh, Naholo? I think he's playing in England at the moment. Yeah. He played for Taranaki as well. Yeah. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember his name. But anyway, he was coming through. Um, who else was coming through? Ch- Charles. Um, Piatel. Piatel, yep, he was coming through. He was a pretty good athlete. Um, Albert Nakora, he was, he was an awesome athlete as well. Um, yeah, there was a few young guys coming through in the back line that were good athletes. The trainer wasn't impressed with um, their endurance, but yeah, they got pushed pretty hard in training so to get them up to speed where they needed to be. Because we had quite a young back line, I remember. Um, but yeah, obviously the All Blacks were, were well trained, but I think they'd had a pretty good break after the World Cup, so they didn't come back in great shape. And Gavin, the difference between the league setup of the Warriors and then obviously the Blues, did you notice any big differences there? Yeah, the, I mean, the first thing, look, I think the Blues now with their new training base um, at Alexandra Park have got a much better setup. When I was there, we were just using a, a, a pretty scungy gym at um, Unitech. Um, the good was, old days you know, at Unitech. There's a lot of people <laughs> scarred by that place that have never really recovered. <laughs> It was pretty, um, yeah, the, the officers were pretty grim. There was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, look, it was fine. It, it was fit for purpose. It did what it needed to do. But I guess in terms of the setup, because like from what I had seen, because league had been professional for so much longer, um, they just seemed to have a better setup than what they had at the Blues at the time. Um, but the Blues had, you know, the same number of staff. They had all the coaches they needed. They had all the access to the sports science, et cetera. So 
in terms of the actual services they are provided, there's probably no difference. Interesting. So then obviously New Zealand cricket spent a bit of time there and a lot of the boys, are good friends of the company, uh, know them yes. quite well. Um, how was your time there and how did you enjoy that? Yeah, loved it. The cricketers, awesome bunch of guys. Not, not that league and rugby aren't awesome guys as well. You know, it, I've been lucky in that I've gone on really well with all the athletes I've worked with and they've all, you know, there's been the odd difficult one um, throughout my time, but most of them have been really welcoming and really um, easy to get on with. Mm-hmm. Um, cricketers, just over and above that. You know, I just found domestically, internationally, bend over backwards to make you feel welcome. Um, very few egos that are out of control. Um, just a really down-to-earth bunch of Kiwi guys, basically. So, yeah, I found it probably the... If I was to look at all the sports that I um, worked with, probably the best sport to work with was cricket um, as, a, as a whole sport, um, domestically and internationally. Um, but I loved my time with the Warriors because I got to travel and sit on the sidelines for games and do all that stuff. So, yeah. So the, but the cricketers were easy to work with. And obviously, um, moving through into uh, um, uh, from New Zealand cricket, what came next? Yeah, so basically, um, I started private practice. I started seeing people privately in around 2011, but it was only uh, um, just the odd person, maybe once a week or once every two weeks. But then once I lost my Warriors contract, which is a big portion of my income, I then had to look seriously at the um, uh, private practice side of things. So I got an office uh, with my best mate who was a, who's a chiropractor in Ponsonby, um, just on, um, in Greyland. And um, so I, I rented an office off him and started seeing people privately there whilst I was still doing my cricket contract and my New Zealand rugby league contract. Um, and I also was doing the breakers. Uh, I forgot to mention that, sorry. Um, so breakers was a small contract, but I did that for a good five years as well. Um, so I had those three sports running in the background and then I was doing my private practice um, in and around that essentially. So yeah, and private practice for me was all about, I started targeting school athletes. So I did quite a few um, emails and meetings with sports directors of all the big sporting schools um, and just started to get a little bit of interest out of that. Um, obviously the fact that you are the New Zealand cricket nutritionist, New Zealand rugby league nutritionist, all that helps to open doors for you. Um, but it is hard graft initially sort of getting enough business through the door because you're a sports nutrition specialist. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy to get those clients in initially, but it builds up over time and you get a bit of word of mouth and things start to start to go on from there. So I, so I was combining all, all of those sports with my private practice up until about probably 2018. I think they all started to fall by the wayside. Breakers was purely money. They couldn't afford to pay for me anymore, so they pulled out. Cricket, they moved a position to Christchurch, and I didn't want to move to Christchurch for a one-day a week, a one day a week role. Yeah. Um, and also knowing that the market in Christchurch for sports nutrition is pretty much saturated. There are a couple of really good practitioners down there. The All Blacks nutritionist is based down there, um, Katrina Derry, and there's also another nutritionist down there who I know well. So I knew that if I moved down there, it would be really hard for me to get enough business. Um, so I decided to let the, let those sports go. New Zealand Rugby League, um, similar thing. They didn't. They've never had money. So and then they just had even less money. So it's just a case of they couldn't afford to pay me. Um, so yeah. So then I was just left with my private practice. So and, and so pretty much since 
beginning of 2018, that's all I've been doing as private practice. So I don't have any sports teams to look after currently. Um, If they came knocking, I'd I'd consider it, but it's not something that I'm now actively looking for. Um, So I'm quite happy doing what I do. And I've I've got a a busy practice. I see lots of athletes of all ages, probably a good 60, 70% of my clientele are still still school-aged athletes. It's great, you know. They're easy to work with, and they 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 lap up all the information you give them, which is good. And is that is that because you're seeing that kids at school now are seeing the professional sports side needing to start early if they're wanting that contract when they're coming to the end of their school term? Yeah. So so obviously the kids know, but the parents know more mm. um, about what the professional landscape looks like. And you get people like Akira Yuani, um, who got signed, as I understand as a teenager from high school by the blues, you know, things like that. So people see that they see these athletes that are getting picked in, in professional teams at, at a young age mm. and are getting the talents being identical, you know, with televised games at, at school, the parents know that if they're, if young Johnny is not up to it at 15, 16 years old, then he's probably not going to make it, you know? So they're, they're bringing people in to see me to, you know, I see a lot of first fives um, on the schoolboy level because they want to get bigger. Mm. They want to put on some muscle. So, you know, I help them put on muscle in the off-season so that they can either crack the first team or can actually make a better impact in terms of the first team. I see a lot of props as well who want to put on size. You know, there's a whole range of positions. Um, and then you've got, you know, cricketers who are just too skinny and they're a bowler and they want to put on some muscle to get, you know, increase their speed. Um, you've got others that are just really love their sport and want to do everything they can to become as good as they can at that sport. So they'll get it. They'll hire a strength and conditioning coach. They'll come and see me. They'll be seeing a sports psychologist, you know, more and more. And I see kids as young as 10 or 11 who are in um, Phoenix Academy soccer programs, all that sort of stuff. And parents are bringing them in and addressing that because these kids are, you know, kids of that age are already training eight to 10 sessions a week. Wow. Wow. Can I just and, that, and that's not going to go away. So they're in the they're in a yeah. So you, I, obviously this is directed at sports nutrition. Do you ever see it filter through to family habits? Obviously the parents at that age see it. Um, do you see it filter through at all into the rest of the family and extended family? Yeah, because one thing that I really focus on is um, I'm not a big believer in having someone sitting in a, in a silo by themselves in terms of their nutrition. I'm a big believer in incorporating that into the family. So what they eat is exactly what the family eats. It's just that their timings might be different. The amounts they eat that might be different, but the foods are exactly the same. So I definitely encourage the kids to have the family dinner, have the same breakfast cereals, you know, or whatever it may be. It's just different amounts and different timings. So, and a lot of the time the parents are already healthy and they're just trying to get their kids to catch up with what they're doing. Mm. Or if they're not healthy, in answer to your question, you know, I often see them adopting the same principles that I've given their, their kids. So. so, Gavin, a big part of, obviously, um, uh, what you go with people, is part, part of it is supplements, obviously, to get um, the yeah. right uh, balance in there. And uh, I've discussed with you, um, I know you're looking to um, complete a new venture in that space. Do you want to give us a bit of a, a rundown on that and, and what that's looking like? Yeah, so the the interest in supplements started when I was a personal trainer back in the in the mid to late nineties. Um, always been interested in supplements and protein powder and stuff like that. There was a guy 
a guy who was a pharmacist um, who used to work with the uh, Auckland Blues setup in the mid to late 90s was in Zambrook and all those guys. Um, this guy called Wetex um, Kang, who was a, a pharmacist who was had an interest in supplementation. And so he used to provide supplements to the Blues. And where I was training in St. Luke's, so I was just around the corner from him, and I used to go see him and buy supplements off him. And so I guess that's where it all started. And I started using things and started seeing the benefits. And then as, you know, as all young kids who go to the gym, I was reading all the bodybuilding magazines and all that sort of stuff. And then, so the passion has been there since way back then. And then right throughout my time as an instructor, as a gym instructor, my, I was probably better at giving nutrition. So, so yeah, the, the um, I guess my main area of expertise has always been the supplementation side of things. Um, so that's what, I, that's what led me to getting offered the job with the U.S. Olympic Committee was my knowledge of supplements. So that that's what I'm known for internationally, uh, the Olympic athletes. So that's that's sort of the knowledge that I have that would help them. And so I always thought that eventually I'd either work for a supplements company or do my own, you know, start my own supplements company. And as I've sort of spent more and more time back home here in New Zealand, I've realised that I could actually start my own company and do my own thing. And, and a lot of that is driven by the fact that I work with a lot of supplement companies and consult to them on their product design and their, and their um, ingredients, et cetera. And one thing that struck me is pretty much across the board, not many nutrition companies around the world have actually got someone who's highly qualified in sports nutrition. They've just got school lever, uh, sorry, university lever nutritionists. So they know basic stuff, but they don't know how to apply those supplements to, for use with athletes. And so I realized there's a gap in the market for something like that. And the, the strength that I have is that I've got that knowledge, but I can also design the products as well. So it makes sense that I go and do that. Um, and also I know about the whole water testing and all that sort of stuff as well, which I can assure the athletes that any product that I recommend is safe for them to take and they're not going to fail a drugs test. So yeah. what's your timeframes on the, obviously the supplement launch? Probably looking at, you know, maybe another two to three months before I'll be able to launch um, the products. Cool. Cool. Just to round things out, mate, obviously this is very generic advice, but you know, for, for your everyday Kiwis that uh, your mums and dads have a family um, getting up, going to work, fueling the body obviously is so important. And I know this um, for me personally, working with you and our family and getting our nutrition right and being healthy, what would, what would be the main bit of advice that you give to people? Just free advice that, you know, what they should do for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and the snacks in between, because we all know that the big air McDonald's is the easiest thing to get hold of and the cheapest thing, but definitely not the best thing for your body. I guess that I see is, um, you know, I've already touched on the fact that there's that people are getting information from sources that probably they shouldn't be getting information from, but that that's not their fault. They don't know where to go for the right information. Yeah. Um, but the key messages I always tell people are don't leave big gaps between meals. So if you leave big gaps between meals, your blood sugars are going to drop on position. So you're more likely to struggle to lose body fat or put on body fat if you're not eating for long periods of time. Yeah. Um, and a classic example of that is sumo wrestlers. They only eat one meal a day because they want to actually get fat. So the less often you eat, the easier it is to look like a sumo wrestler. The more often you eat, the more likely you eat like a look like a bodybuilder, for example. So, so that's why I always advocate three meals a day plus a snack in between. So generally the diet should be relatively low fat moderate carbohydrate so low carb diets don't work long term for people and not a good idea so you still need carbs but the amount you need will vary depending on the person and what you're doing um, and then you should have a high protein diet so i'm a big advocate for having protein at every meal 
So protein with uh, breakfast, lunch and dinner, and also trying to get some protein in with your snacks if you can. So, so that, that's the general principles of what I adhere to. And, and I've been using that for years and years. And I, and I know based on body composition testing and results I get with my clients that that works. And, and I, I tailor things depending on, you know, what results I get with clients. So if that's not working, I'll change it, but that works. So. Mate, one deep question before we go back into a cook fire questions. We ask everyone uh, that has come on, what legacy do you want to leave on this earth? Yeah, I suppose um, I've got two girls, uh, seven and five, and I would love for them to pick up sort of habits that I've, I suppose I've learned or habits that I've sort of got as a, as a child. And um, that's, you know, work hard to, to get what you want. Um, don't always have to take no for an answer. You know, you can keep pushing if you, if you believe in what you believe in. And also to, to back yourself, you know, if you're not happy doing what you're doing, then don't be afraid to change. You know, I, I went to university at 28, you know, the life doesn't have to follow a set path, you know, you can change it. Um, so yeah, I guess, yeah, that would be what the legacy I'd want to leave for my kids and for anyone else out there. Just, you know, you can change things to suit what you need. You don't have to accept things. Cool. Absolutely love that, mate. Right. Now, just to get a few cook fire questions, um, just to round it off and keep it nice and light. Would you rather shoot spaghetti out of your fingers or sneeze meatballs? <laughs> it's a trick question because of COVID, isn't it? So <laughs> spaghetti out the fingers. <laughs> nice. Can't sneeze anymore. Yeah. One sports person you would take into a zombie apocalypse. Ooh. Kronkowski, the NFL guy. He's a bit of a beast. Oh, yes. I'd love <laughs> to go anywhere with Gronk if I was being <laughs> What is your dream job if you weren't doing what you were doing now? Probably I'd uh, quite like to. I, I used to want to be a police officer. So a high-ranking police officer would be quite a good job, I thought. Mean, mean. Love it. Lastly, favourite airline to travel on? Air New Zealand. Love Air New Zealand. Bring them back. Get those uh, long-haul flights going again and make them cheap so we can travel the world again, eh? <laughs> Hey, Gavin, mate, I know you're a busy man and appreciate you coming on. Thank you no, very much. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Awesome to hear your journey, uh, where you started, how you got there, and um, some really key points. And to the listeners out there too, we have all types of people. So if they can pick something out of this and help themselves. But um, where can people find you if they want to make contact uh, for some advice? Yeah, sure. So my um, business is performancenutritionservices.com. Uh, um, so you can just Google that. If you Google sports nutritionist and Gavin, I'm the only one. So you'll find my business pretty easily. Uh, and I'm, my practice is based in Ellerslie um, and Ladies Mile. So, but yeah, for any contact or anything like that, if you'll find all the information on my website. So. Brilliant. And I can vouch for Gavin because myself and, and my wife go to him and said he's brilliant. So um, <laughs> Gavin, appreciate your time, mate. Stay safe. And uh, I'm Thank sure you. the listeners are going to love this podcast. Excellent. No, it's been a pleasure talking to you both. And nice to meet you, Isa. You too, Gav. You heard something in our podcast that sparked a question or you need financial help from an expert, please reach out on our social media platforms, Facebook, LinkedIn or Instagram, or go to our website which is www.moneyandpie.co.nz. And remember, tomorrow is too late, yesterday is over, and today is the right time to start. So our motto is always, be proactive, not reactive.